The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered one of the villages, ten lepers came to meet him. They stood some way off and called to him, Jesus, Master, take pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go and show yourselves to the priests. Now as they were going away, they were cleansed. Finding himself cured, one of them turned back, praising God at the top of his voice, and threw himself at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. The man was a Samaritan. This made Jesus say, Were not all ten made clean? The other nine, where are they? It seems that no one has come back to give praise to God except this foreigner. And he said to the man, Stand up and go your way. Your faith has saved you. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ. Could I have a show of hands, anyone who's ever been on a pilgrimage, a, a spiritual pilgrimage? Has anyone traveled to Rome or Medjugorje or the Holy Land? Yeah, a few people? Yeah, good. In my first year of the seminary, I had the privilege of going to the Holy Land with, with some of my cohort. And it was a, a very transformational time. Like, you can't read the scriptures without saying, I've stood there. <laughs> I've seen that. I've dipped my hand in that pool. It, it, it's, they call it the fifth gospel, you know, the fifth, the fifth encounter with the story of Christ is to actually walk the geography of it. And I'm very lucky and pleased to be going there again at the end of this year with the diocesan trip. And I don't think it's... Actually, it is too late at this point to get on board that. But, um, but that, should be a, that should be a wonderful time. Second question, in your travels, have you brought back with you any keepsakes? And I don't necessarily mean souvenirs, you know, like little trinkets in, in the secular sense, but I mean something that has a bit of spiritual pedigree to it. Have you brought back uh, icons or relics or even, you know, the, the water that's in the Jordan or anything like that? Yes? It's a strange thing we do, isn't it? I mean, at one level, it's just sentimentality, but it's definitely more than that. It's, it's not just romanticism and sentimentality, but actually, I think what we're doing is very much what we hear that Syrian uh, officer do in the first reading. It's part of our understanding of sacramentality, you know, the fact that God wants to be mediated through stuff, and we meet him in material, even though God is not part of nature. How else are we going to meet this God unless he speaks to us through the waters, through the sand, through the starlight, through each other, through the gestures we make, through the words we speak? Our God desires to be mediated, which means we participate in God revealing himself to us. It's an astonishing thing. And so we keep these things because we remember that once spoke to me of God. That positions me to, to, to be in front of God, to worship God. These things, even though they're mundane things usually. Well, that's what Naaman, or Naaman, the Syrian officer, does. It's a beautiful story. We hear it a few times throughout the year. But just to give a bit more context, we heard the very middle of the story where this officer of some repute, I mean, he's a Syrian, he's officer in the Syrian army, so he's got some renown, he's got some, I don't know, prestige to try and uphold, and he finds himself leprous. And he says, what am I to do? Now, 
fate had it that their household had a Jewish little slave girl because they'd pillaged <laughs> Israel at one point and captured slaves and there's this little Jewish girl and she says there's a God who can cure that our prophets in Israel they can fix that so he takes his convoy and he goes and as we hear he goes to Elisha's house the prophet the famed prophet and he's upset because he thought Elisha says what sort of what Jesus says go and go and wash in the in the Jordan seven times and he says I thought the prophet was going to come out, bring out the trumpets, you know, put on a bit of a display, pray some big dramatic charismatic prayer over me, and I'd be miraculously healed. It'd be a great spectacle for everyone. He didn't even come out of his front door. And he says, bathe in the Jordan, this little excuse for a river. We have better rivers than this in Syria. And his, his servant says, if the prophet asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. He's asked you to do something easy. Just do it. So he does it, and he's clean. And there's more to the story. We hear that when he goes back, he begs Elisha to accept a gift. And Elisha says, no, God forbid. Makes me a little bit guilty about these stipends we have right here. These are mass intentions, you know. Um, you're constantly asking us to uh, offer the sacrifice, and then there's a, there's a monetary dimension to it, which makes me think, gosh, are we, <laughs> are we doing the right thing here? Obviously, there's a lot of regulation about how that happens. I, I can only offer one mass for one intention. But I don't know, it makes, makes me think. So um, anyway, that's, that's enough of that story because we can revisit it. But it's, it's a profound story, and I think there's a lot latent in there for us to think about. How exactly do we position ourselves before this God of ours? What aids are around us? And they might be mundane things, but they're meant to help us be positioned to worship our God. Is God localized by material things? Of course not. See, what the Syrian man says is, give me some of that dirt from your land. Give me, give me a, a, everything that my mule can carry because I'm going to have to go back to Syria now. And I refuse to worship a God other than the one I met on your soil. So even though I'm going back there, and, and he says in the reading, even though I'm going to have to help my king worship a God I know to be false, I'm going to have to help him kneel down because he's an old man and I, I'm going to have to kneel next to him. But I don't believe in that God anymore. I want to take your soil with me so that I'm standing on Israel wherever I am. Sacramentality. Is God localized in, in things like that? No, of course he isn't. He's the God of the cosmos. Even time and space can't contain him. But we come here for the same reason. Sometimes we hear, oh, I meet God at the beach or I meet God in the forest or when I look up at the stars. All of that's true. All of this is at God's disposal. But are we really worshipping God in the, in the complete and utter sense exclusively when we're at the beach? Maybe, but probably not. We're probably splashing around in the water, which is not evil, but it's not exclusive worship. Are we offering sacrifice? Are we atoning for this broken world? Probably not. It is possible to, but probably not. It's why we have something called consecration. You know, we set stuff aside for exclusive uses. We're not going to do anything here other than worship and love each other and drench in the love of God. This place is set apart for that purpose only, which is good. It's good that we're here. It's good that we can drink it in, become like little sponges in the presence of our God. Anyway, fast forward to the gospel then, and you see Jesus on the move as he is. There's nothing idle about Jesus. 
He's always pressing forward to reach the outcast, the least, the lame, the weak, the frail, the forgotten. He's on the move, and, and we hear he's heading to Jerusalem between Samaria and Galilee. And you think, where is this liminal space just in the middle of sort of nowhere? And he goes to some no-name village. They don't even name the village. It's some insignificant place. And he's met by, we hear, a crowd of lepers, ten of them. Now, who are they? We don't know. They're not important enough to name. They're just a horde by virtue of their leprosy because we know that lepers were outcast. We're familiar with the language of isolation. They had to isolate from the community for the community's sake. And there was a great demoralization that happened as a result of that. They were seen as less than worthy. So you've got this crowd of, of sort of outcast people. And then in the crowd, there's an even further outcast person because he's a Samaritan. So not only is he leprous, but he has no access to the, to the salvation that Jesus has to offer, so, to, so, so you would assume. Now Jesus says to them, they're standing afar off, and they say, Lord, Master, have pity on us. And Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priest. Now this is strange, because think back to Leviticus. The job of the priest in that scenario was to inspect the person, and if they had a, a scabby legion or a you know, a mole or a sore or something that looked a bit dubious. The priest said, I'm sorry, you're not clean. You have to go and isolate again, maybe longer. And you've got to burn your clothes and burn all that stuff. And yeah, these people know themselves to be leprous. And Jesus says, go and show the priests yourselves. What are they going to say when they get to the priest? Hey, priest, look at how disgusting I am. My limbs are falling off, you know. <laughs> I'm a tattered wreck. It's, it's strange. Why would... Why would why would they go? But they go in obedience, in faith. They go. And immediately, they're rendered clean. Now what happens? Because there was a crowd of ten, but only one's returned. Somehow they've just dispersed. I don't know what caught their fancy, but they've run off to whatever occupation they, they want. They've regained whatever identity they once had. They're no longer part of the ten, but they're somewhere else now. Who knows where? The one who was furthest from Christ, the Samaritan, comes running back. He who was furthest is the only one to experience genuine closeness. He throws himself at the feet of Jesus. Where are the others? Well, they've, they're happy with wherever they are. They've been cleansed, but they haven't been saved in the full sense of the word. They haven't understood the economy of grace. It's only the Samaritan who understands he's received a gift that he could never have earned. He wasn't entitled to it by religious class or by his own virtuous merits or nothing. He's received something and he's just gobsmacked. <laughs> so he runs back to Jesus to tell him. He's crying at the top of his lungs, praising God that, that this miracle has occurred. This story has to be our story. And I can't help but think that over the past few weeks, we've sort of been building up to this, and we continue building. But think back to our discussion about justice, affording everyone what they deserve, God and neighbor, and the community affording each of us what we deserve, you know, this kind of loving each other as, as is done in the heavenly kingdom. Then think of our grappling with faith, a gift from God, a genuine response to God, um, something that I receive, but then I have to exert so that it bears fruit. 
faith and justice and grace and everything is all at work in this story. I think it's fair to say that if there's one thing that stifles grace, that is to say God's activity in your life, in my life, if there's one thing that stifles it, it's entitlement. Thinking that God should do whatever we want him to do. God is God. You know, even my pet dog doesn't have to do what I tell him to do, really. But God is free. And grace, the very word, it's a gift. Entitlement stifles grace. But I'd like to suggest that by contrast, something that just multiplies grace infinitely is thanksgiving, is praise. It's the reason why we're here. The word Eucharist means thanksgiving, to come to the altar, to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and to say, Lord, your healing work is, is at work in me. Just think of the, the little journey we've made from the beginning of Mass to now. We come and we cry out like, like the crowd, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And what does the priest in the person of Christ say? Basically, go, <laughs> go present yourself to the altar. And in the short space of hearing the word, the healing is well underway. Whatever brokenness it is that we brought here, be very assured the Spirit is not shying away from that stuff. The Spirit is working in you now. Our response now has to be thanksgiving. To come and to celebrate with great joy, with unbounded joy. Can I invite you in this moment thinking back to our pilgrimages and the things we've gathered, can I invite you to, to place around yourself and to situate yourself in something that reminds you everything that you're thankful of from God? Give yourself as many reminders as you need. This is like an ancient thing to do, but we can do it in this day and age with all of the technologies that we have at our disposal. Surround yourself with everything that you can here in this space, but wherever you are, in your workplace, in your home, in your car... <laughs> We've got rosary beads hanging off our um, review mirrors. Surround yourself with this stuff so that at every moment, everywhere and always, as we say in the Eucharistic prayer, it is right and just everywhere and always to give you thanks and praise. It is our duty and it is our salvation.